How are we doing? Good to be with you guys. My name is Daniel. Uh, I'm a part of a pastoral team at a church here in Brooklyn. I get to come here and speak every once in a while. It's been a few months, so it's good to see some familiar faces. So we are going to be in the last chapter in the book of James. I know that you guys have been going through parts of James with Logan, who was here before me. Uh, we're going to be in the last chapter, chapter five. And this, this week, the sermon is about money. And when Logan gave me this, this section of scripture to preach, I kind of begged him, like, I don't want to be the guy that has to speak about money. But nonetheless, I am, and we're going to do this well. And I know it's, it's a holiday weekend, kind of, and it's later in the afternoon, so I know we're going to be a little bit tired. So I'm going I'm to need your energy. So if you're here, say I'm here. Let's get through this together, people. So James chapter 5, starting in verse 1. It starts off very encouraging. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you. And, you, and it will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasures in the last day. We'll pause there. We'll keep working through it later. Starts off pretty rough. James comes out pretty hot. He says, hey, rich people. And the problem with preaching a text like this is that when I say rich people, every single one of us in the room, we have a category for what rich is. We know who that person is in our life who is rich, whether it's an uncle, someone in your family, somebody you live with. We all know who is rich. We have a category for it. Maybe it's someone who lives on the Upper East Side or has a cabin in the Poconos. Whatever it is, you have a category for it. But what so often happens in scriptures like this, where we see categories like rich people, we often have a category for it, and we know who's in it, and we're most, certainly, we're most certain about it that we are not rich. Like we have a category, and we are not in it. We know rich people, but we are not rich. And so I'm going to dedicate the next three minutes to trying to convince you that you and I are rich. Because I want, I want us to realize that who James is talking to is not some person that you know that you wish would be more generous, but it is in fact us. So we live in America where there are classes. There's middle class and upper middle class and lower class. And for, for decades, people have noticed that almost 80% of Americans all identify as being in the middle class. When statistically that doesn't add up. There are more people in the upper class, more people in the lower class. But for some reason, people who are in the upper class are less likely to say that they are wealthy. Which is interesting because wealth and being rich is something that every single one of us, maybe every single one of us, tries so hard to strive for, yet so few people are willing to say they are wealthy. Ameriprise Financial, which is a huge corporation in New York, did a study of 700 millionaires. And they asked him, do you consider yourself wealthy? Millionaires, net worth of $1 million. 13% said yes. Only 13. So many of us have a category for who is rich. It is just so often not us. So when we ask that question, when we say, who is James talking to? Who is the rich? I want you to take a guess at what so economists all kind of estimate that globally, what is the amount of money you need to make to be considered in the global 1%, the top of the top? Does anyone want to take a guess at how much you have to make annually? Actual question. 100,000, great guess. 
34,000. See, none of you stood up and were like, I made it. I'm in the 1%, baby. Now, immediately, all of us said, well, we live in New York, and that takes my money. So that doesn't apply to me. That might apply to somebody else, but not me. And so there's an economist who's a famous one. His name's Daniel Kahneman. He wanted to say, okay, given all the factors, where you live and, and what you like, given all the factors, what is the, the amount of money that can make someone the, the peak amount of rich? He said, when does your life begin to start to go down as far as value and worth and happiness? What number is basically enough? He studied this really vast study, became really, really widespread. And the number with all things considered, location, interest, all that, the number that he came up with was $75,000 a year. $75,000 a year. Not one million, not 100,000, but 75,000. And they notice in the research, after 75,000, people's enjoyment of life started to go down, not up, the more they earned. Now, I say all that, just to say, when James says, listen up, rich people, he is not talking about your uncle or your aunt or the person you live with. He is talking about us. That there are just privileges that you and I have and choices that you and I can make that would have been completely foreign to James. He could not believe that we would have AC. So when James says, listen up, rich people, all of us, let's listen. He continues on. He says, weep and howl for miseries are coming upon you. Eugene Peterson put it this way, a final word to the arrogant rich, take some lessons in lament. So he says, get ready to lament. You know why? Because on the very last day, all that you will have to show on the very last day of all your wealth, of all that you earned is clothes and jewelry. That is all that you'll be able to show. James even says, the things which you purchase will be evidence against you on the last day. Now, when you begin to preach sermons about being rich, everyone naturally has the question, is being rich a sin? Absolutely not. There are so many people in the Bible that God uses that are wealthy. Think of the father Abraham, probably one of the most wealthiest people in the ancient Near East. What James is talking about is not that you're a bad person if you have means, but he's talking about something that we would call greed. This idea that we need to always get more not to give up, that we need to acquire, not to relent. So he's talking about greed. And so what James is saying here is that the problem isn't that you buy stuff. All of us buy stuff. I'm a spender. I get it. The problem is when you buy so much stuff that it begins to distract you from the life that you are heading to, that it makes you so focused on this life, you become so nearsighted that you forget to where you are going. So James's point here is that greed leads to being inattentive, that you are no longer focused on the important things of life, but only what you can purchase. And this is the problem with greed, is that once you get something, you want something else. We all had a number when we were kids. If I could just make this much money. I remember when I was eight, I thought if I could make a hundred bucks, I would be set. But as we get older, and more opportunities come our way, we begin to acquire more wealth. And so what do we naturally say? Well, how much more? Well, how much more? How much more can I get? 
And greed is this never-ending cycle where it promises you joy at this number or at this purchase, but when you get there, it wants more. It's a never-ending cycle. John D. Rockefeller, who's one of the most richest people to have ever lived, ever, he was the first billionaire. Uh, One reporter asked him as he was getting into a car, they said, Mr. Rockefeller, how much is enough? Richest man in the world said, just a little more, just a little more. And that sounds ridiculous, but we all buy into it as well. We all buy into it. And so James is trying to counsel us. He's saying, do not hoard possessions. Because when your life becomes about getting just a little more, a little more, at the end of your life, all you have to show for it is nice stuff. And you will have lost focus of the major, the most important thing in your life, which is the life to come. And when we have a hoarding lifestyle, when we begin to just acquire, 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 we are a distracted people. Chris Nye, who's an author in the Bay Area, he writes about a story about when he was a youth pastor, he took 15 students on a mission trip to Nicaragua. And they went to the poorest city in the entire like, region. And this city is literally, it's where the city dump is. So when they go into the city dump, it's just garbage everywhere. And that's where they, they, they all live in the garbage. And you see families and kids dig into the garbage to find something of value, to sell it somewhere, to make ends meet. And Chris says, it's, it's the most visual picture of hell I've ever seen. And later that day, he goes to his translator and he says, I have never seen anything like that. I've never seen just people surrounded by stuff with no real way to have a good way to live. His translator interrupted him and said, you have never seen it so plainly is what you mean. In America, you may not be living in such a physical hell, but your experience would tell you that here is the, here is the exactly American situation. It's the same thing, just newer garbage. And that's the reality for you and I. We have access to so much great stuff. Praise God, I do enjoy stuff. But sometimes that stuff becomes a distraction. And just because it's new and admired by our friends and people we love does not mean that it's necessarily good for our soul. And so James is not against you owning nice things, but he's he's against you being distracted on the main thing. So, What do we do here? One application is we have to be marked. If we are Christian people, we have to be a generous people. Say generous with me. One, two, three. Generous. That there are many things the Christian church is known for in Brooklyn, and there are many good things and many bad things, but I long for the day when we are known as a generous people. And so we have to ask helpful questions like, what is our relationship to money? Notice that Paul in 1 Timothy says, the love of money is the root of all evil. Not money itself, but your relationship to it. What is your relationship to money? When you grew up, how did your parents talk about money? When you saw someone who was less fortunate than you, what was your reaction and why? Are you a spender? Are you a saver? What is your relationship to money? We have to begin to question our habits with money. Doug Moo, who's a New Testament scholar, put it like this. In the Western world, where amassing material wealth is not only condoned but admired, we as Christians need to come to grips with this point in James and ask ourselves seriously, when do we have too much? When do we have too much? As many people have said before, um, and I think it's so helpful for us, 
A $80,000 salary does not require an $80,000 lifestyle. That we have to ask ourselves, when is too much that I'm beginning to become distracted? As God, as Jesus told his people that we cannot serve him and money at the same time. We must choose one. We have to choose one. Francis Schaeffer commenting on this said this, either riches in this life, option A, or the reality of God in the future, option B. One of them must give the overshadowing cast to our lives. One must dominate our lives. To the extent that wealth or power is our reference point, we are spiritually poor. If you make it your ambition to make the most money in the most amount of time so you can retire at one point, I guarantee you at the end of your life, you will have regrets. And one of them was that you did not make your faith the most important thing in your life. It's not a bad thing to seek wealth, but it be, when it's the main thing, it becomes a very bad thing. Okay, I'll move on. Point made. Let's go to verse four. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. I'm going to cover this point just briefly. James begins to say, here's the reality. In a society where you have rich people, you will always have poor people. And more often than not, when you have rich people, they will become more and more rich at the expense of poor people. Now, this just happens to create a system of injustice where poor people in our life begin to be looked down on. And as I read this verse, I know that you might say, hey, I don't ever treat anybody unjust. I am not an unjust person. I'm not going on my way to be mean. I, I treat people with respect. But what I think James is getting at is he's saying in your life, the more that you acquire, the more means that you have, and again, you may not feel rich, but statistically you are, the more means that you have, the more likely you are to look down on others the more likely you are to look down on others. There was a, a season in my life, part of my job is I had to fundraise, which fundraising is just a, a nice word for you have to ask people for money. And I had an, a fundraising appointment with this person at a coffee shop and I did my whole spiel and I made the ask, would you donate this amount? And, and they said yes and I felt really successful and got in my car and started to leave the appointment. And in the median at the intersection, there was a median and there was a homeless person there with a sign asking for money. And I remember looking at them and just thinking, we, we kind of look similar in age. And so I said, where did I go right and this person go wrong? And I began to think self-righteously, well, I, I went to college. Well, I, I worked hard. Well, I did X and I did Y. And I felt just the conviction of the Holy Spirit. You realize you two are doing the same thing. He asked for money on the median. You asked for money in the coffee shop. But because of my choices in life, I thought that I was better than him. Now, you are shaming me, but you do it too. And James is trying to guard us against that. He's saying, those who are the least, the lost, and the forgotten, as Christians, we have no bearing and no doing with looking down on them or thinking unjustly of them because they are made in the image of God. And even more so, Tim Keller says this very profound statement. It's a lengthy quote, and I'm going to read it. Just stay with me. Stay with me. It's the, it'll be the best thing you hear all day if you just stay with me, I promise. Tim Keller says this. My experience as a pastor has been that those who are middle class in spirit tend to be indifferent to the poor. 
But people who come to grasp with the gospel of grace and become spiritually poor find their hearts gravitating towards the materially poor. To the degree that the gospel shapes your self-image, you will identify with those in need. You will see their tattered clothes and think, all my righteousness is filthy rags. But in Christ, we can be clothed in his robes of righteousness. When you come upon those who are economically poor, you cannot say to them, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, because you certainly did not do that spiritually. Jesus intervened for you, and you cannot say, I won't help you, because you got yourself into this mess. Since God came to the earth, moved into your spiritually poor neighborhood, as it were, and helped you even though your spiritual problems were your own fault. In other words, when Christians who understand the gospel see a poor person, they realize they are looking into a mirror. Their hearts must go out to him or her without an ounce of superiority or indifference. You see, this is what James is saying. When you see those who are less fortunate, you do not take advantage of them, but you see a mirror of yourself, and by God's grace, he has saved you. Amen? So the application, we must be a just people that do not look down on others who have less means, and we must care for them. Now, we live in New York City where people are always asking for our money. Every subway train we get on, we hear a story, and they ask for money, and if we're honest, Many of us are like, what do we do? You cannot read the major and minor prophets and not think that God is indifferent to the poor. He, he deeply wants us to care for the poor. But man, if I gave a dollar out for just every time someone asked for a dollar, I'd be broke. So what do we do? A friend of mine after a service recently came up and asked me this very question. I said, man, I honestly, I don't have a great answer. Obviously, you can get involved in organizations. Obviously, you can care. You, you can find you know, who your church is partnering with and help there. But in your practical life, here's what we came to. We said, man, on the subway, we, we don't want to, when you're traveling or when you're out, we don't want to be the kind of people that hear suffering of those less fortunate than us and are callous to it. This is part of the city. It is what it is. They're everywhere. Like I knew something was wrong in my life, like straight up. I was on the subway and I was hearing speeches by people who were asking for money and I was grading them. I was just like, that wasn't a good conclusion. I would have opened with a better story. I was like, this is, not how, this is not how it should be. And so we want to be the kind of people who says, Lord, as I hear this story, though I will not contribute because it may not help the actual problem, I ask that you break my heart for them because I am staring into the image of God. Because if I ignore them or if I am callous to them, I am guilty of what James is saying. So God, break my heart for the people that are suffering. Move with me to verse 5 and 6. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. I told you this was an encouraging section of scripture. I mean, this is just, this, this thing is just rough. We're coming in hot. This is, this is a lot. So James continues. He says to us, rich people, at the end of the day, do you know what makes you different? If you only invest in yourself, all you will have is a fatter heart. You will have been fed more. That's all you will get if you are focused only on yourself. James's point here is that greed often leads to self-indulgence. Again, I am not against a little bit of indulgence. I had brunch today. It was great. I'm not against spending money. 
But what I am against, what I think James is against, is when we only care about ourselves with our possessions. That really what often happens when we become indulgent, we are actually hurting ourselves more than, more than we are healing ourselves. Because the reason that many of us so often want to spend money or acquire things or get more things into our bank account, it is to feel a hole in our hearts. It is often because we're seeking the approval of someone else. It is often because we so deeply desire a feeling and we think we can get it through a purchase or through a salary number. I remember recently I was watching the Arnold Schwarzenegger documentary on Netflix just came out. It's fantastic. You should watch it. But he tells this story about how his whole life, he, he, he had just become Mr. Universe and he was now going to Hollywood. He was making these these great movies that were hitting number one in the box office, and his life was on the up and to the right, and out of nowhere, his mother died. And he realized his whole life was just a pursuit to hear his mom say she loved him. And when she died, he said, why am I doing all this anyways? And this is, that, that feeling that Arnold was talking about, that is the feeling essentially what James is going against. He's saying, look, the reason that you purchase and you acquire and you abuse those around you isn't because you're a bad person. It isn't because you have money. It's because deep down there's a desire within you to prioritize yourself more than others. And no purchase, no acquisition can ever heal that. And so we must be the kind of people that seek approval in God over anything else. And I think what's so interesting about this is that greed often promises to us things that, that we already have. You think about the story in the garden with Adam and Eve. The serpent goes to Eve and he says, do you realize if you take a bite of that apple, you will be like God? Do you know what Eve should have said? I already am. I've been made in his image. And that is what greed does to us. It says, man, if you get that salary, if you buy those shoes, if you do this, man, people will approve of you. People will like you. People will notice you. I long for the day when many of us are responses, I already have the approval of the person I so dearly admire. The creator, heaven, God, he looks down on me and says, I approve of you. You are my son, my daughter. There is no purchase that can give you that. Only found in the cross. John Bellion, who is a pop star or a rapper, one of the two, he wrote a song that kind of echoes this sentiment. He says, what if I, who I had hoped to be was always me and the love I fought to feel was always free? What if all the things I've done were just attempts at earning love? And man, that is the cry of many of our hearts, that we are often chasing something that in reality, it was free to begin with. That God, because of the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross, we can now have right relationship with God. We can be approved by God. We are loved by God. We are sought after by God. We do not have to live this rat race of always trying to achieve, achieve, achieve when it has already been finished. And that's why James is going so hard after these people, because he says, your greed shows that your unbelief. Your greed shows your unbelief. One of my favorite stories in the, the scriptures is of the prodigal son in Luke 15. And it's really, theologians will call it the two lost sons, because you have a son who asks his dad for inheritance. He says, give me all your money like you're dead to me. 
I want my money. I'm out of here. And he goes and he squanders all of his money, comes back, and his dad, instead of ridiculing him or condemning him, he says, come in here. Let's throw a party for you. I love you. My son who was lost is now found. And the older brother, who'd done everything right, followed all the rules, never squandered any money, he sees that his dad is throwing a party for his brother who's reckless. And he goes to his dad and he says, how could you? I've done everything for you. I've done everything right. And his dad says this beautiful line, do you realize everything I have has always been yours? And that is the offering of God to us. That as we seek the approval of so many things, as we use our influence and our wealth and whatever we have to earn approval and satisfaction, we must be reminded that God looks to us and says, what are you doing? Everything that I have is already yours. And that is good news. So, in closing, as we think about how we can use our means and our privilege in a way that is helpful to the kingdom of God, we need not to look too far, only to the cross. Paul says this about Jesus, and it will be helpful for us. Adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus, who existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. Christ, in his goodness and his perfectness, who was in heaven, who had everything under the sun, was given to him, did not use it to exploit or to abuse, but gave it up for the sake of others. So when you think about your position in life, it is not about what you have or what you can get, but so often marked by what has been given to you already. And so may we be the kind of people, as the final day approaches, we, do not, we are not known for what we have, for what we purchased, but we can look at the debt that sin of, that we have and say it has been paid by the Savior. And that's all that matters. And if you realize that, your relationship with money will forever be changed. You will realize that the only power that has over you is Christ, and money will no longer have power over you. And that is such a beautiful feeling. May we be the kind of people that live generously, that live justly, and seek the approval of the Father. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that you are so good to us. That you have given us good gifts and you give us great gifts, God. That as you've given us your son, that we can be reminded, God, that you are the only thing in our life that matters. That we want to put the good gifts you have given us in their correct position. That we don't want to worship money or power or fame, but we want to seek your kingdom first. We want to be with you first, God. God, we ask that as we go into our weeks that you would help us learn to be dependent on you. To seek first your kingdom, God. God, help us to be a generous people and a just people and to seek your approval, God. It's in your precious name that we pray. Amen.